Well, friends, this morning I want to invite you guys to turn over to Psalm 114. We're going to, uh, we're going to be continuing this morning to look at psalms that respond to the Exodus. The Exodus was our series all spring, and for the summer we're taking several different places in Israel's songbook where they sang about what happened, where they commemorated it and helped each other remember it and, and, and stirred up one another's affections for God and His goodness in their life through recounting the Exodus. Each one of these songs puts a slightly different angle on it, picks up a different piece to the story or a different theme that comes out of it and helps, helps drive it home through the songs that are written here. And this morning, in Psalm 114, we're taken to the heart of the Exodus and what it was all for. This psalm, Psalm 114, is a psalm that's focused on the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord is a theme that's certainly in the middle of the Exodus, but not just there. It's a theme that's all through the whole Bible. The very beginning of the Bible story in Genesis talks about God creating the world perfect, good, full of beauty and, and love, with nothing to spoil it, and at the center of it all, in a garden, was God himself present with his people. The entrance of sin, which Genesis tells about just after describing that garden, is one of the first effects of the entrance of sin is God's presence being cut off from his people when things begin to unravel apart from his presence. So at the beginning of the story, you've got the presence of God as this beautiful gift. At the middle of the story, when God begins to set things right through the, through the gift of Jesus, his son, that gift comes to us with the name, Emmanuel, God with us, the presence of the Lord right there at the heart of what God does in history to make things right. And if you zoom all the way to the very end, to revelation and a picture of the coming of a new kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth, right in the center of it is the promise that God himself will dwell with us. So from beginning to the middle to the end, the presence of the Lord is what the Bible is about. But that sort of language, this language of God's presence or God being with his people, that language sometimes, I think, for many of us has been less clear. Not that it's there, but what it means, how to experience it, and what makes it good news to have God with you. If you've ever wondered what you have when you have God's presence, this psalm, I think, is going to help you this morning. It won't answer all your questions. It's not about every dimension of God's presence and what's good about it. It isn't practical in the way of a how-to that'll give you several steps that you need to enjoy God's presence today. It's not doing that kind of work. The work this psalm does, and what we're going to try to benefit from this morning, is to, to bring focus to the power of God's presence. And in a way that stirs our desire to enjoy His presence and feeds our hope for the day when His presence will be fully ours. This is a psalm that focuses our attention on what we've been promised and reminds us what good God has done already and what he will continue to do. It's a psalm about hope, really. And it's a psalm that communicates truth about God's presence through poetry. So what that means is it's packed with beautiful images, with illusions that we're going to try to trace and, un and, and, and unspool a little bit this morning, if you will. It's a short psalm. There's not many verses, but it is full of illusions that are important for us to understand what it's getting at. And 
And really packed into these verses and in the allusions that they include is the whole of the gospel. The grand story of God's grace entering into human history to set right all the things that have been broken, ruined by sin. I don't think that's overpromising what this psalm intends to deliver. And what I want to do with the rest of our time together is try, to, is try to show you what's here. I want to begin by reading the whole thing. It's only eight verses. That won't take us long. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time trying to, to flag these images and illusions and understand what it's getting at so that we can all benefit from the hope this psalm is meant to give to us. So if you would please stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm going to take up reading Psalm 114, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word to us this morning. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to walk you through this psalm and its allusions and to the destination towards which it points in four steps this morning. I've listed these steps out in the worship guide that you should have received on your way in here if you want to track with me and figure out where we are or jot down some notes as we move our way along. And the first thing I want to do, just to pick up on the first two verses, this is maybe going to be so simple and obvious a point as not to need to be said, but I'm going to say it anyway. I just want to point you guys to the priority of God's presence to what this psalm does to put the presence of the Lord at the center of what the Exodus story was about. The psalm opens with a summary of the Exodus. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. It's talking about the whole story we, we covered together earlier this spring. Where Israel, enslaved in Egypt, at the mercy of a power that didn't care anything for them except what he could get from them, God heard their cry. God came down with power through the man that he sent, Moses, and he set them free and brought them out to set them up in a land that he had promised to them. That's the, that's the story that verse 1 is echoing. But more than that, this, these two first two verses are meant to tell us what happened when God set them free. When Israel went out from Egypt, verse 2 tells us, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. Two lines making the same point, that the point of the Exodus, the sum of what it was all about for this psalmist, was God making his home with his people. That's what it means to say that Judah became his sanctuary, the place where God would live. You see what he's doing? In this simple, straightforward opening, he's giving us the point of the Exodus story. God was about building a kingdom with God's presence at the center of it. One of the things we said often when we were working through Exodus 
uh, was how important it is to recognize why God set Israel free. The focus of the story wasn't so much on what he set them free from, as important as that was. It wasn't just about Pharaoh and his oppression. It was also about what God set Israel free for. He had something in mind for them. It's a different kind of rescue story than what it could have been. Last year, we were uh, on vacation down in South Florida visiting some family, and we went to this turtle rescue uh, center. Uh, I think it was a state of Florida thing uh, that, that took in and rehabilitated sea turtles that got eaten up by sharks partly or caught on a fishing hook or tangled up in some net or something. One way or another, these turtles get, get trapped, get captured. They get brought to this rehabilitation center, and they keep them there, and they take good care of them, and they give them what they need to hopefully thrive again in the wild. And then when it's done, having set them free, they take them back out to a hospitable part of the sea, maybe without as many sharks, I don't know, and they turn them loose. And they say, go, be turtles, live your best life. That's one kind of rescue story. You find a victim, helpless, caught up in a threat they can't avoid on their own, and you turn them loose to go and live their life. That is one way the Exodus story could have played out. But what we've been trying to say all along is that that's not the story here. That in this case, yes, a helpless victim was found. And yes, that helpless victim was rescued. But Israel wasn't then taken out into their natural habitat, if you will, and turned loose to go make of themselves whatever they wanted. No, they were brought in. The point of the Exodus was not them going out to live life on their terms, but them living with God as their God and them as his people, with him in their midst. In other words... When Israel went out from Egypt, Judah became his sanctuary. That was the point. God with them. If this, the way this psalm sums up that point of the story explains why the, the whole story of Exodus plays out the way it does. It goes on for nearly 20 chapters after the story and after the law is given, just laying out how to build a tabernacle for God to live in on their journey. All these complicated details for what this tent was supposed to look like and who could go where and what you'd do in each room of that tabernacle. The tabernacle was the point of the story. Half the book is given to it just about. And this psalm fits with one of the clearest purpose statements the Exodus gives us. In Exodus 29, here's what God says about his purpose in setting Israel free. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This psalm's just picking up on what we saw over and over. The point of the Exodus is also central to all of the Bible, and it's the core of what we call the gospel. God wants to be with his people. His desire is for his people. Not to throw them favors from on high, when they ask in just the right way, but to be with them, to be their home, to be their rest. And he wants that for you too this morning. That's, what I, that, that, that's the simple, straightforward point that I hope to start with here because the psalm does. God's presence is the point. That's the priority of God's presence. But what this psalm, I think the heart of this psalm and the most useful thing about it for us is that it helps us to recognize why it's good to have God's presence with you. I think it's fair to ask, once you see that his presence is the point, like what, what do you have when you have God's presence? What does that even really mean? 
What makes it good news? And that's where this psalm goes next. That's what we learn from verses 3 to 6. Now, sometimes, if you've been especially, especially uh, I think if you've been around churches for very long, you might hear of God's presence, and then immediately in your mind, where you're jumping to is some kind of spiritual experience that you have. You're thinking of some sort of inner quality, some inner sense, maybe, a spirituality through which you sense God's nearness to you. And I think there are good reasons for those kind of those kind of thoughts, those associations with the idea of God's presence. Uh, I mean, other psalms go there and talk about that, that benefit from his presence. But for this psalm, for Psalm 114, as it looks back on the Exodus, the goodness of God's presence is, is focused somewhere else. It's less about a personal spirituality than about the safety of God's people when he's with them. What you have when you have God's presence on the terms of this psalm reflecting on the point of the exodus is you have a safety that you can't get anywhere else. To have God living with you is to have his power on your side, by your side. Because his presence, friends, this this right here, this is the point I want to chew on for the next few minutes. His presence, God's presence, is incompatible with sin and the sorrow that taint even our most enjoyable experiences of the world. This world, at its best for us, is marred by our sin and the sin of others against us and marred by the sorrow that taints everything. And God's presence is incompatible with sin and sorrow. When you have God's presence with you, you are safe in a way you can't be any other way. Now, that's a lot. That's a big claim. I want to, I want to try to help you see where this is coming from using the richness of the imagery in our psalm. The psalm doesn't just come out and say it like I just said it, that you're safe in God's presence because it's a poem. It gets at truth through a different way. I want to help you see it on its terms, help you recognize what the images are and what they're alluding to. And we're going to walk through it layer by layer, but I promise by the end of it, I'm going to come back and sum it all up for you so I can show you where I'm coming from. Okay. One of the the first things I want you to notice about this, this section here is that to make his point about what happened when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he personifies the sea and the Jordan River and the mountains. He turns them into almost persons who act and react to the presence of God nearby. He talks about, he's referring surely in verse 3 to the Red Sea, which parted for the Israelites and then destroyed their attackers. And then he talks about the Jordan River, which later on in the story, beyond what we looked at, Uh, It also parts so that Israel can pass through it on dry land, entering into the promised land. And the mountains that were around them as they entered. These things flee. They turn tail and run. They skip like rams and lambs. Why? All at the sight of God who's with Israel. You see what he's doing when he says this? There's a reason he chooses the sea and the mountains out of all the things he could have chosen from the story. There's a lot of details of God's miraculous power. But when he wants to step back and in only eight verses sort of summarize the whole point, he chooses the seas and he chooses the mountains. Why? I think it's partly for the same reason so many of us take trips to the ocean and to the mountains. We take trips there to sit there and stare at them. You sit on the porch and you look at the mountains in the distance and you just look at them. You you, you, you sit on your... You know, your, your deck of wherever you're staying at, at the beach and you just look as far as the eye can see at water 
and waves crashing. Why do you do that? Because I think partly because there's there are few things that so quickly put us in our place and show us how small we are. Few things more powerful than water. Even a, even a small but steady trickle can wear down other things that we don't have the power to even bend. And few things are so immovable as mountains of rock. But as Israel approaches, the sea recognizes what's coming and runs. The mountains recognize what's coming and they skip like little rams. The psalmist knows that this reaction from these forces more powerful than any of us can ever deal with on our own is not about Israel. It's not that they saw Israel coming and they fled or they skipped. It's who's with Israel that matters. One of the, uh, one of the child uh, kids books that we read a lot in our family is The Gruffalo. The kids out there, y'all read The Gruffalo? Anybody else read The Gruffalo? few hands, few you guys have. If you haven't read The Gruffalo, you should read The Gruffalo. It's an awesome book. Pretty much everything by this author is great. At one point in The Gruffalo, you've got this little mouse wandering around in the deep dark wood and all the predators who love to snack on little mice think the mouse looks good. And as the mouse wanders from... But, but, but about halfway in the book, the mouse encounters this, this huge monster, the Gruffalo. It's got knobbly knees and turned out toes and a poisonous wart at the end of its nose, among other things, among other scary characteristics. Well, as the mouse wanders back through the deep, dark wood, with the Gruffalo back behind him, he encounters the snake, who otherwise would have eaten him for lunch. The snake takes a look at the Gruffalo and slithers right back into his log pile house. He comes up on an owl that otherwise would have loved to have snacked on that mouse. But the owl sees the gruffalo over the mouse's shoulder and he's gone. He comes up on the fox, loves to eat mice, sees the gruffalo, he's gone. At each time, it's the mouse who's encountering them. But it's not the mouse that gets that reaction. It's the gruffalo. And the reason the psalmist is drawing our attention here is to remind us that that when Israel came up against that Red Sea with Pharaoh at its back and that Red Sea turned tail and ran, it wasn't because that sea was afraid of, of Israel. Israel had God's presence with them and that's why the sea fled. There's more though, friends. We're just scratching the surface of this imagery Did you notice the way verses 5 and 6 talk to the sea and to the Jordan and to the mountains and to the hills? These verses taunt the sea and the river and the mountains and the hills. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? What ails you? It's the kind of taunt that you, that you give to a rival you really can't stand when you see them go down. It's, it reminds me of the picture of Ali standing over Sonny Liston. You guys know that one? You know, Muhammad Ali in his prime, like this, muscles all flexed, looking at this guy that he's just beaten down. He, he, he's, he's taunting his enemy. And that's the way the psalmist is imagining the flea. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? Why would you taunt the sea? I mean, if we're just talking about the story and the details of it and the way it played out, the sea was just kind of the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, it was Pharaoh that was the problem. 
It was Pharaoh that needed to be destroyed. The sea was just in the way, gets parted, and, and then moves on, continues on with his life. It wasn't the focus. But for this psalm, it is. And that is a clue to us, friends, into the deeper meaning of these images and into the power and hope that comes to us through them. It helps us to remember, I think, that the Exodus story for Israel was always bigger than just the specific events that played out in Egypt. It was a story that was meant as a pattern, a kind of stand-in for God's whole purpose for the world. And knowing that that's what this story meant to them, and that's especially what this story meant to them in their songs about it, it also helps us to know that some of the images that were often used by their neighbors where they lived at this time and in this place. Israel was part of an ancient Near Eastern context where the water had a special symbolic power to it. Partly, surely, because of how terrifying it would have been to them. And they, didn't have, they were at its mercy, even in a way that we don't feel. It was chaotic to see the sea and all its power raging against you for them. But they took that experience of the sea and built on it and invested that, the, the, the water with, uh, as, as a kind of uh, material representation of a spiritual reality. For them, for the ancients that lived there around Israel, the sea represented evil and chaos and disorder and all that's wrong with the world. You can see this playing out in, in, in some of the Bible and the way that it uses water especially in its poems. If you read the book of Job and many of the Psalms, if you think back to the creation story, when God is bringing order from chaos, it's water that he's pushing back and creating land. It's water that he separates out in that way. The water represented evil to them. Or as one commentator, a lot of commentators that I read this week are talking about this, but one of them put it, I think, in a really helpful way. These seas, these rivers, they are representing here spiritual forces of darkness. And when God acts to redeem his people, he is doing something much bigger than just rescuing an apparently randomly selected group. He is beginning a process, the culmination of which will be the restoration of a perfect order in a world that has been invaded by the forces of chaos and darkness. This author is mocking the sea because for him the sea is not just this small body of water near Egypt, near Israel. It represents everything wrong with the world and it cannot stand in the presence of God. To have God with you facing disorder and chaos is to know that what threatens you will not have the last word. Now, friends, I, I know we don't think about water like this. We don't put this kind of weight on it. And, and even beyond that, we, we may not often feel ourselves to be at the mercy of uncontrollable nature like they did because we've done so many things to try to trim our world down to size. But, but we, we owe it to ourselves right here, right now. We owe it to ourselves to recognize that our lives are just as vulnerable as theirs were to unpredictable and irresistible forces of darkness. And I don't just mean spiritual powers, though that's certainly part of it. I mean what you might think of as the mundane, run-of-the-mill, everybody, everywhere, presence of sin and sorrow 
wherever we experience them. These are the dual problems of life in the world that the Bible talks about over and over again. Sin and sorrow. And they aren't unique problems. They're everybody problems. And even if life may not feel chaotic or uncontrollable to you now, at some point, everybody experiences the effects of sin and sorrow. At some point, you are going to feel your powerlessness in the face of darkness. You may be hurt by the selfishness of others. You may experience the vulnerability of your body to accident or to disease or to abuse or just to decay. You may see what you love change and slip away in time. Life spares nobody. And you don't need me to tell you that. But what this psalm says, what Exodus illustrates, what the rest of the Bible echoes, is that in God's presence, there's safety. He is not vulnerable. With him on your side, you aren't vulnerable either. Life is a storm. And the only safe harbor that we have is the presence of God. Because God's presence is to sin and darkness and disorder like oil is to water. It's either or. They displace one another. They don't mix. I think that's why another psalm, Psalm 16, talks about the presence of God as the place in which there is fullness of joy. That psalm of David says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. What he's talking about, I think, is that the joys that we experience now, real though they are, are tainted. They're not full. Partly because they don't last. Partly because we do things with them we shouldn't. We make gods out of the good things that we enjoy. We idolize them. We envy them in other people. We compare what we have to others. We do all sorts of stuff that corrupts the things that, even the things that bring us joy. We don't know what it is to have fullness of joy. But in his presence, because darkness, chaos, evil won't mix with him, there is a fullness of joy you can't have anywhere else. The only place to get it is the presence of the God at whose coming the sea turns tail and runs. Friends, the Exodus story is a picture of what God has done, but also what God will do by His power. And what you need to know so far from this psalm, from that story, is that to be in His presence, what you have when you're with Him is a safety that nothing can touch. And it's to be there to be on hand when what is spoiled and broken and ruined is made beautiful and whole again. That's the safety of God's presence. It's at the heart of this psalm and what it celebrates. But the psalm doesn't stop there. In fact, it ends on an ominous note. We need to be honest now. In talking about the threat of God's presence, not just the safety that's found in his presence, but the threat of his presence that is hinted at in verse 7. There's only one command in this song, only one takeaway. Up until now, it's just been describing things. Verse 7 gives us the application. The application is to tremble. And that word means what you think it does. 
And that word is aimed at everybody. Why? Because the presence of God, the only hope that any of us has for true safety, is not safe for sinners. The presence of God is a gift that no one is worthy to enjoy. Friends, this is a point that Exodus made repeatedly. We tried to to highlight it when we came to it. Israel, for example, wasn't supposed to touch the mountain where God met with Moses. When Moses went up to get the law and Israel waited at the bottom, they were told strictly, do not touch even the bottom of this mountain. It is not safe for you because God is there. And when Moses gets the law, one of the main things he's given is instructions for setting up this tabernacle I mentioned earlier. The whole thing was built to emphasize that God is with you, but you can't come too close because his presence is not safe for you yet in your sin. And perhaps the most clear example we saw in the story of the Exodus about the, the, the threat of God's presence came at the climactic moment in that story the final plague that God sent against Egypt and Israel's experience of what we call, what Exodus calls, the Passover. At the very end of that story, the final plague, the one that ends uh, Pharaoh's uh, death grip on Israel and refusal to let them go, is a, a terrible judgment sent through Egypt where the firstborn sons of that land were taken, were killed. And up until that point, all the plagues had applied Uh, to Egypt only and Israel was set apart from them they were given safety in their own land from all the other things that fell on Egypt the point that was a big part of the point of these plagues was that Israel and Egypt are in a different category but then you get to this Passover and all of a sudden you realize there's a twist here Israel is not safe here either this plague is meant for them too unless they take the way of escape that God gives them and so the Passover is them taking up God's command to, to, to kill a lamb so that their sons don't die, replacing the death that, that they deserved with the death of a sacrifice that substitutes for them. Their only hope for escaping that judgment was a way of escape God provided to them by His mercy. There's no accident, friends, that this psalm, Psalm 114 has been sung along with the Passover meal for thousands of years. This is one of the psalms that, that Israel and their descendants would sing each year celebrating the Passover. And it's partly for sure because it's about Egypt and the Exodus. But I think it also gets sung at the Passover because the meaning of the Passover is built in here to the end of this psalm. It raises a question at the heart of the whole Old Testament. How can God's presence be safe for sinners? We've said it. His presence is everything. His presence is the point. We have no hope without it. No hope for security. No hope to see the world made right. No hope for peace without His presence. But how is His presence safe for me? Because what I've got to realize about myself, what the whole Bible tells me is true about me and friends about you too, is that I'm not just at the mercy of the brokenness I experience in the world. I am guilty. I'm not just a victim, but a perpetrator of the brokenness that I experience. And when you're part of the problem, when you've committed the sin that you long to see wiped clean, what then? What can you do in the presence of God when you bring disorder with you? 
this tension between the promise of God's presence and the blessing that comes with it and the threat of God's presence is one of the clearest ways that the Old Testament sets up the beauty of the gospel. And you can't understand the New Testament without understanding, without feeling something of the tension that's built right here into this psalm and its images. Just for example, I love the way John's gospel talks about Jesus using terms pulled from from this context. At the very beginning of John's gospel, when he's announcing and setting the stage for who Jesus is and what his coming means, why it's such good news, he talks about Jesus as the word who was with God and who was God being made flesh and dwelling among us. He picks up the word for sanctuary or tabernacle. When he, when, when he says that, this, this psalm about God making Judah his sanctuary gets fulfilled in a brand new way in Jesus, who in his own person, as a human person, was God dwelling with us. But then soon after, John goes there. Just a few verses later, in chapter 1, John says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just God dwelling with us, but God doing something about our sin. John's gospel ends with Jesus willingly marching toward death on the day of preparation for the Passover. The day the lambs were going to be sacrificed was the day he went to his death. And one writer that I read this week noticed that Jesus himself, as he walked towards his death, almost certainly sang this song. On the night that he died, he celebrated Passover with his friends. Part of that celebration was to sing this and other psalms about the Exodus. Think about that. What went through his mind as he sang? Knowing what he was about to do. Knowing what it meant to have God's presence turn back the sea, turn back the Jordan but knowing that this power that is the only hope for his people was a power soon to be turned on him. Knowing that when the judgment of God on sin came down, the earth would soon literally tremble under his cross as he died, absorbing God's wrath meant for us. Knowing that he knew more than anyone else could what cost he would have to bear. He, Emmanuel, God with us, marching as a lamb to the slaughter. Because he knew that for his people to know God's presence, he would have to be forsaken. He was made to be the sin that God's presence can't tolerate. He was forsaken because that's what sin deserves. He went through hell so that sinners like me can know safety, fullness of joy that only comes in God's presence. I know, friends, that I've talked a lot about images and illusions and we've packed a lot into these short verses. I want to cut through all that and boil it all down for you right now because I realize you may be here in church for the first time in your life and all these illusions have been just sort of washing over you and 
It's important that you know the Bible is like this. It's an incredible document that's interwoven with all sorts of stories that are connected from beginning to end. And that's one of the most beautiful and powerful things about the Bible. But if I could boil it down for you, the point is this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And that's a promise for you right now that you can claim this morning. You can trust in Christ who paid the penalty your sins deserve so that you can enjoy the presence of God meant for God's people. And if you do, if you claim this promise this morning, then you get to live with a hope you have not yet been able to imagine. There's a lot of ways we could go from here, a lot of directions we could take, a lot of different things about God's presence that are true and that the Bible teaches and that we could chew on. But I only want to do one thing here. I want to leave you with the taste I want in your mouth as you walk out this morning is the taste of hope, the hope of God's presence that we're waiting for now. Yes, of course, there are benefits of his presence. Christians live with even now. We have his spirit in us in a mysterious way. I can't imagine. I trust he's working on me even when I can't see it or understand it. And yes, we have his presence through his word and his people who help us understand it and love it. And yes, we can know his presence some through prayer. And we have the promise that we can come straight to him. We don't have to go through some temple anymore because we can, we can go straight to him through Jesus. Jesus has bought us that right. Yes, his presence is ours now. But in a real sense, the, the, the benefits of his presence that this psalm has been talking about, to have the sea, the chaos, the darkness and disorder that we know mars our life now, turn tail and run, are benefits we have not yet experienced. I want to pick up two places in the New Testament to read to you that look ahead to the day when Christ returns and a day when we will have God with us fully and what we will have when he's here. I said earlier that the, that the Bible's picture of what's broken boils down to sin and sorrow. The sin that we commit against one another and against him, the sorrow that we live with as everything in this life ultimately withers and falls. That both aspects of our problem as humans are problems that Jesus has come to solve and that he's done so perfectly. I want to just point you to a couple places where the New Testament says, when he comes, here's what will happen. So that you leave this morning with the hope of his presence. The hope of God's presence for us is the hope of victory over sin and comfort in sorrow. Victory over sin and comfort in sorrow. Victory over sin. One of my favorite places in, in John's first letter, 1 John. We looked at it a couple years ago in our sermon series. One of my favorite places, the most memorable times from that series together for me was John, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 begins with imagining the time when we see God ourselves. When he comes and we recognize him and experience directly the presence that we've only tasted in part so far. 1 John 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. That's what we have now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared. We can't even imagine what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you see what what John is saying here? To have God's presence fully in the way it's been promised is to have sin completely driven out of us. To become completely like his purity and his holiness in the way he always intended. Because in his presence, we will see his beauty in a way we have never seen before. And seeing his beauty, seeing him as he is, nothing will ever turn our heads again. Nothing that competes with him will continue to compete with him when we see him as he is. We will be completely enraptured by him. And having him will drive out all the sin we wish we could do without right now. I know you're tired of dealing with it. I know because we're talking about it. And I know that there's, there's a lot more sin struggles in this room than even I know about. And I know sometimes you get beat down and you think that it won't ever change. And friends, the honest truth is that if it's up to you, it won't. You really don't have the ability to perfect your life. But you have a promise purchased for you by the blood of Jesus that one day he's coming back. And when he comes back, his victory for you will be completely won. Because his presence can't mix with your sin. What that means is you can identify yourself with your sin and be consumed by the presence of Jesus. Or you can identify yourself with Jesus and watch your sin get consumed. Those two can't coexist and you get to be with Christ, if you will. We're promised in his presence a victory over sin that's complete. And we're promised, friends, not just victory over sin but perfect, unthinkably absolute and never changing comfort in sorrow. What do you have when you have God's presence? Well, when you're in his presence, all the brokenness that mars your experience of life now flees like the Red Sea before Israel. And that picture is given to us in one of the most beautiful, most hopeful descriptions of the coming kingdom that the Bible has ever included. Here's what it says. Here's what God's word says to us in Revelation 21. I want you to read, I want you to listen as I read Revelation 21 with Psalm 114 in the Exodus story as your background. I want you to listen as the, the seas make their appearance in this verse and as God's presence makes its appearance in these verses. Listen to this, friends. What do you have when you have God with you? What will we have when he's with us finally and fully? Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them 
and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And we've been asking all along, okay, but what does that mean? What is it to have him dwelling with us? What exactly are we hoping for? And verse 4 gives us our answer. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. What do you have when you have the presence of the Lord? You have a safety that nothing can touch. And that, friends, in Christ is your future. Father, I pray that you will help us to live in the hope of that day and that you will hold us fast in the midst of things now that draw our affections and our attentions away from you or that threaten our confidence in your goodness and your ability to deliver on your promises and that you would remind us of what you've done for Israel and for us in the past so that we can trust you to be for us in the future. We pray that your spirit would work in us by this word and stir up our hopes for what we face together now this week. In Jesus' name, amen.